0: Good evening. Next week, Thanksgiving week. Can you believe that already? So, just want you to know that next Wednesday night we won't be having our normal Wednesday night service. Instead, we're going to have a family service in here. Um, all all members of the family welcome. All kids of all ages will be in here, beginning around seven o'clock, and it'll be a time of praise and worship. We'll also have a mic. That'll be open tomorrow for people to come, uh, or that service for people to come forward and share what they're thankful for. It's a great time of celebration, so come on out and uh, be a part of that next Wednesday. We're in Joshua chapter 6 tonight, so let's turn in our Bibles to Joshua chapter 6. Page 250, if you're using the Bible under the chair in front of you. One of the most well-known, well-loved stories in the entire Bible. The Battle of Jericho. The walls of Jericho. I definitely want video footage of that one in heaven. I want to see how that went down. You know, I've been to Jericho twice. And I'll have to admit that uh, on my first visit, I was a little disappointed. I was looking for walls turned over, you know. But uh, come to find out, Jericho's been built and rebuilt 34 times since that time. So 34 different sets of walls have been built around Jericho. But what God does in Joshua chapter 6 is an incredible miracle. Let's pray. Father, we ask now as we turn our attention to your word that you would give us clarity, understanding, that we would understand truth in the balance as you intended. Father, we're reminded tonight of your greatness and your power. You are God Almighty. And as your people, we are to conquer in your name. We are to walk in victory. Father, we're also reminded tonight from your word that you're a just God. That you will make things right. We're also reminded tonight that you're a God of mercy and grace. And you've blended that perfectly together. We definitely, Lord, want to be on your side. Saved. Pray that nobody would wait too long. Draw us close to you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the Israelites under... The leadership of Joshua face a tremendous challenge here in Joshua chapter 6. Look at verse 1, chapter 6. Now Jericho was securely shut up. Because of the children of Israel, none went out and none came in. The Israelites have been commanded by the Lord to conquer the city of Jericho the city of Jericho is target number one it's a very strategic city it's right in the central portion of the promised land they're going to take Jericho they're going to cut straight across then they're going to do a northern campaign and a southern campaign Jericho is very very important Jericho was actually a pretty small city it only covered about nine to ten acres our church property right here six-and-a-half acres so the original city of Jericho was actually very small but it was a fortified city it was surrounded by massive stone walls historians believe that it had a stone base of about 11 feet topped by 35 feet of smooth stone sloping upward at a 35-degree angle joined to the towering main wall. So it was almost like a double wall structure surrounding the entire city. And as we see here in verse 1, it's shut up. They are on high alert. The gates are shut. The soldiers are in place. It says no one is allowed out and no one is allowed in. They are ready, they've heard that the Israelites are coming, so they have prepared. So you're looking at a city that is, looks almost impossible to conquer. Now I want you to understand something very important here right off. The inhabitants of Jericho knew about the Israelites, In fact, they've known about the Israelites for 40 years. We know that from our study of Rahab. Remember when the spies went into Jericho, they talked to Rahab, and Rahab said, Everybody's heard of you. They're terrified of you. They had heard about Israel getting out of Egypt. They had heard about Israel crossing the Red Sea. They've heard about the recent victories that God has given the nation of Israel. So everyone inside had heard about the Israelites. And more than that, the inhabitants of Jericho, along with all of the other Canaanites in the promised land, had heard about the God of Israel. And their cultures have known about the God of Israel for hundreds of years. Well over 400 years. We know that because God speaking to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. Talks about how he's waiting for the iniquity of the Amorites in the promised land to become complete. So they have known about the living God for 400 years. Understand this. God has been reaching out to them. For 400 years. God has been trying to get their attention for 400 years. But they have rebelled against the Lord. They're refusing to turn to the Lord. And they're in league with false gods and occultic behavior that actually leads to the most depraved societies, one of them, that there's ever been on the face of the earth. So, it's very important to understand that as we go on in the story. They've known. They've heard. And now they know that the Israelites are coming, so they've battened down the hatch. They're all secured up. Now, normally, to take a city like that, you wait it out. You put soldiers around it. You wait for them to starve to death. That takes a long time. They don't have that time, They have been commanded to take that city as it is and to take it very quickly. Now, how do you do that? It looks like an impossible task. But look at the promise that they're given in verse 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of Valor. Now, that is a promise of God. You have the city, you've been given Jericho, you've been given the king, and all of the soldiers, everybody in that city. And I want you to notice that the promise is in the past tense. I have given, not I'm going to give. I have given. This is what's called a prophetic perfect tense in the Hebrew. This is speaking of a future action as something that is already accomplished. And I want you to think of how encouraging that would have been to Joshua. Joshua, be encouraged. I know you're looking at a city that seems impossible to capture. But I have already given it to you. You are not going to fight for victory. You're fighting from victory. Very encouraging. Wouldn't it be neat... If you knew, if you were getting into the ring with Mike Tyson, that you were going to win. That'd be pretty cool, right? To know that you're going to win before you have the fight. But you still got to get in the ring. And I don't know about you, that'd take a lot of courage getting in the ring with Mike Tyson. So, you have this promise. The victory is guaranteed. It's said in the past tense. But, they've got to get in the ring. They've got to go down. They've got to take that city. Okay. Now God is going to give them the plan. The strategy. This is how you're going to take the city of Jericho. God said to them, first thing you're going to do is build battering rams. Then siege engines. Then scaling ladders. Then catapults. Is that what God told them to do? First you're going to build all of this equipment, and then you're going to use that equipment, and you're going to plow through the walls, and then strategically your soldiers are going to go in two by two, and they're going to take the land. Is that the strategy that God gave Joshua? Now, folks, that's what Joshua would have expected. Joshua was a seasoned military leader. If he were having a consultation with his military advisors, this is what they would expect. That would have been the logical way to go. But God did not give them that plan. Not even close. In fact, God gives them a plan that is absolutely silly. Utterly ridiculous. Crazy. Insane. From a human perspective. From a military perspective. Look what the plan is. Verse 3. You shall march around the city, all your men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. Verse 4, And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, And when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every man straight before him. Insane, right? God says, Joshua, get seven priests, give each one of the priests a shofar, a ram's horn, seven horns get the ark, they're going to be carrying the ark and you're going to march around the city of Jericho one time per day for six consecutive days there's going to be a string of soldiers that goes first then the seven priests with their seven ram horns, then the ark of the covenant, then a rear guard each day for six days you'll march around The march is to be a silent march. No one's allowed to speak. No shouting. No talking. Not one peep. The only noise will be these seven priests blowing those seven shofars. You're going to do that once a day. After you're done with your march, you're going to go back to camp. Then on day seven, you're going to march in the same categories in the same shift, only you're going to march around the city seven times. Again, completely quiet, nothing but the priests blowing those shofars. After the seventh lap, the priests are going to do one long blow on the shofar, and then at my cue, everyone is going to shout at the top of their lungs, and guess what? The walls are going to fall flat, Then you're going to go up into the city from all sides and take it. Imagine you're the general and you bring that plan to your military council. You want us to do what? Have you heard right? This makes absolutely no sense. There's no sense to it from a defensive standpoint. The priests never went to war. You don't put the priests in the battlefield. The Ark of the Covenant was never carried onto the battlefield. As they're marching around that city, what's to keep the men from the top of the walls? Shooting arrows down at them, throwing spears. As they're marching around the city, what's to keep men, soldiers from inside, Rushing out to divide the the army and conquer them. It made no sense defensively. It made no sense offensively. Massive stone walls don't fall down when you shout at them. Massive stone walls don't fall down when you're blowing a trumpet. None of it makes any sense. They're even using the wrong trumpets. In the Old Testament, when Israel goes out to war, they blow the silver trumpets. That's the call to war. The shofars, the ram's horn, that was for celebration. That was for worship. They're not even declaring war. What they're doing is they're parading around and they're celebrating Makes no sense. Crazy. I've noticed in the Bible that God oftentimes asks his people to do crazy things. Have you noticed? Things that don't make any sense? Abraham, pack up all your belongings, pack your family, you're going to move. Great, where am I going? I'll show you. Who gets up and moves and doesn't know where they're going? Noah, I'd like you to build a giant boat in your backyard. David, I'd like you to take Goliath with a sling. Gideon, I want you to go to war with torches and pitchers. Oh, and by the way, I want you to only have 300 men against the thousands. Why does God do that? Why does God call us sometimes to do what seems utterly crazy? A strategy that makes no sense? So he'll get the glory. So that after the victory, we can't look back and think, wow, look what I did. Look at my battering rams. Look at my scaling ladders. No, no, no. God wants to make it absolutely clear that he's the one in charge and he's the one that does the work. And he gets all the glory. So Joshua, march. March around the city of Jericho. And to his credit, he obeyed. And he obeyed immediately, regardless of how ridiculous it would look. He started on day one, that day. Look at verse 6. It says, Then Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city. And let him who is armed advance before the ark of the Lord. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets and the rear guard came after the ark while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you shout. Then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord circle the city, going around it once. Then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. Day one, they did it. Now you're in Jericho. What do you think? What are you thinking? It's probably tense. They're probably afraid. They're probably, here it comes. Here comes the army. They march around once. Now they're going to charge. Now they're going to come with the battery ram. No, they go back home. You're thinking, what's that all about? Continues the next five days for a total of six. Look at verse 12. Joshua rose early in the morning... And the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Then seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets. And the armed men went before them. But the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city, how many times? Once and returned to the camp. So they did Six days. So for six straight days, same thing. Now, on about day three or four, you're in Jericho. What are you thinking? What's wrong with these people, right? What are they doing? I can see some of the guys up at the top of the wall shouting down. What are you going to do? Trumpet us to death? Going to sing us to death? There's probably some mocking, some taunting going on. Also, by day five or six, I think a lot of the people, a lot of the soldiers in that parade, that march, were probably beginning to wonder what's going on. Most Bible scholars believe that all of these soldiers and all these people involved receive their orders daily. Only Joshua knew about the whole week-long thing. Only Joshua was given the big picture. And maybe a few that were really close to him. But for everyone else, they're getting up on day one. Okay, everyone get suited up. All right, we're going to go to war. No, you're going to march. Okay, they do it. Day two, same thing. Day three, same thing. By day six, they're probably thinking, what's going on? What are we doing? But they were faithful and they were obedient every day. They got their orders. They suited up. And they marched around that city. And by the way, I think that's a very good picture of how we as Christians should live our lives as Christians. We should see our Christian lives as a daily march. A daily march. With no knowledge or perhaps little knowledge of tomorrow. We should get up every day and serve the Lord that day. Getting our orders from him for that day. A lot of Christians, they live in the future. They think, what is God going to do in the future? No, the question is always, what is God going to do today? What are your marching orders today? Okay. Day 7. Good Verse 15. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day only they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened when the priests blew the trumpets That Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And then he gives them a couple more instructions here on day seven. Look at verse 17. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction. It and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live. She and all who are with her in the house. Because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. Okay, we're about to shout. They're about to blow the horn. The walls are going to fall. Here are your instructions. When you get in, know this. The whole city is doomed. Wipe out everyone. In the city. One family lives. Rahab. And whoever's with her in her house. Everyone else. Wiped out. He says. Don't have anything to do with the accursed things that you're going to find in the city of Jericho. Don't take any of the idols. None of the images. None of the things that would belong to demonic worship. Leave it be. Don't take it. All of that's going to be burned up in the city of Jericho. Don't take it. You can take the gold, silver, iron, and bronze vessels, but they're not for your own use. Those are to be put into the treasury. Okay. Verse 20. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, With the edge of the sword. There's a shout. The walls fall down flat. All sorts of explanations for this. Some say there was an earthquake that took place right at that moment. Others say it was the sonic waves. That weakened the wall during the six days. And then the shout was just too much for the walls. And they fell. Others say that. While they were marching around the city, other Israelites snuck in and were digging into the wall. All this ridiculous stuff. Listen, God knocked down the walls. It's clearly a miracle. And we know it's a miracle because one section of the wall, at least, was allowed to stand. Which section? Rahab's section. Remember, she had her house was built into the top of the wall. So all of the part of the walls fell down flat, except for her section. She was spared. God did this mighty, mighty miracle. And when the walls fell down, what did they do? They went into the city, and they wiped it out. All human life was killed. All life that hadn't been destroyed by falling walls was killed with the edge of the sword. Now, this is a verse that a lot of Christians really struggle with. The nation of Israel... Went in and wiped out a city. And it was according to the command of the Lord. A lot of people are very, very uneasy with that. So it's very important that we understand what's going on. Very important. This is harsh. This is a harsh judgment. Understand something very important about the Lord. He is a just God. And the scripture from beginning to end says there will be judgment. And from beginning to end, throughout the scripture, God judges wicked nations. Period. If a, if a nation is wicked and persists in its wickedness and continues to ignore God with all the chances that are given to it, that city, that nation, will be judged. And you see it throughout the scripture. Folks, God judged the entire world in the days of Noah. Noah. What happened in the days of Noah? Wiped out the whole world. Except for Noah and his family. When you study the book of Daniel, the the dreams that Nebuchadnezzar has in in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, it talks about these nations that come up and the nations that are judged by other nations. The Assyrians are in charge. They're judged by Babylon. Babylon exists for a while, then it's judged by the Medo-Persians. The Medo-Persians are in power for a while then they're judged by the Greeks. The Grecian empire is in charge for the while for a while then it's judged by the Roman empire. Nation after nation after nation. The nation of Israel itself will be judged by Assyria and Babylon several hundred years later. You can't escape it. In the scripture, God judges wicked nations. And he judges nations differently. He used water in the flood. How did God judge Sodom and Gomorrah? Fire and brimstone literally poured out upon that city. Sometimes God will judge a nation with drought, famine, economic collapse... But listen, most often when God judges a nation, he uses the military of another nation. That's what you see most consistently in the Bible and throughout all of history. And that's what's going on here. The nation of Israel is the vessel of God's judgment being poured out upon the wicked city of Jericho. And please understand this. It was wicked. The things that have been found about that culture in the Canaanites way back, they lived in depravity. Very bad people. Sacrificing their kids to to demons. All kinds of atrocities. Violence running amok. Now, God is fair when he judges. Everyone is given a chance. Everyone is getting an opportunity. That's why I made such a big deal right at the beginning of this chapter. These Canaanite nations had several hundred years. God was reaching out to them. It wasn't like one day God said, let's judge them. They had every opportunity available to them to turn to the living God. But they were rebellious. They were adamant in their rebellion against God. They refused to turn. They embraced wickedness and their depravity. And folks, I don't know when it takes place, but the scripture clearly teaches that eventually a nation or even an individual can cross a line. Whereby they've, they've gone the point of no return. And that's what happened here. I want to read something in Deuteronomy chapter 18. I'm just going to read this to you and listen very carefully. God says this to the nation before they go into the promised land. He says, When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, child sacrifice, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritus, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out before you. That's why they're driven out. Because of those abominations. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you will dispossess listen to soothsayers and diviners but as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. So you need to keep this in mind. It wasn't like God is saying, I want to give Israel the promised land, and I got these people in there, and I'm going to kick them out. The promised land was filled with the people who were given hundreds of years to repent, to turn. And the judgment came once they passed that point of no return. And They were required to wipe them out, to completely kick them out of the land, so that they would not be polluted by that activity. If those people were allowed to live, if they were allowed to stay in, they would be polluted, and they are to completely purge the land of that to protect their own innocence. So take them out. I know it sounds tough. Years ago, um, when Pastor Chuck Smith was alive, by the way, he's more alive than ever today, just in a different place, he's in heaven. But years ago, I went to a conference, and, and this I will tell you, this little passage right here has always been a tough one for me. It's a hard one. It's a hard one to grasp. Pastor Chuck gave an illustration of this very concept. Let's say you're a security guard. You're armed. And your job is to protect little innocent preschoolers that are playing on the playground. And there you are, you're protecting them. Pretty soon you notice up the street an animal's walking Towards that playpen. The closer it gets. The more you realize. This is a deranged. Rabid dog. Giant St. Bernard. It's foaming at the mouth. It's diseased. This dog is. This dog is already dead. It's going to die anyways. Within days. And it's heading towards those kids. In the playground. What do you do? Come on kids. Let's go pet Cujo. Do you do that? Let's go play with the doggy. No. What do you do? You shoot it dead. It's deranged. It's disease. It's already going to die. You do not allow it to attack innocent people. To some extent, that's kind of what was going on there in the promised land. You have a group of people that are already dead. Their society is self-destructing. It's going to die on its own. It's diseased. It's sick. God just brought that judgment quicker. And did so in such a way to protect the innocence of his people. Folks, don't miss it. The judgment of God is serious. And it's real. Is the church called to do things like these today? Should we as a church go out hunting? No. And the atrocities that were committed by quote-unquote Christians in the Crusades as Christians went out and killed Jews and Muslims and all of that is an absolute perverted twist of the Scripture. Remember, the church is not a nation. The scripture has given the sword of judgment into government authorities. Into national authorities. This isn't a church acting in Joshua chapter 6. This is a nation. This is a military. So, no. As members of the church, we aren't involved in this. I am totally against violence from the church. Christians who think they're going to go blow up abortion clinics? Vigilantism, all that? Completely uncalled for. However, if members of the church, Christians, join the military of the nation of America, In that capacity, the military serves as the sword of God's justice. And so if they're a part of that, and they're going out and they're taking out ISIS and other bad guys, that is permitted. But this is no excuse for Christians and churches to take the law into their own hands. There's also grace and mercy in this story. Rahab, right? Rahab. Look at verse 22. But Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has, as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. God did save Rahab. And understand that. That's a very, very important part. God rescued Rahab. God sent two spies into the city of Jericho. You remember? And they thought their job was to go spy out and see what get intelligence. Their job was actually to rescue Rahab. They met Rahab. Rahab would be saved. Her and her entire household. If anyone in any culture, anywhere, is open and is seeking the Lord, will save that one and apparently Rahab was the one the only one of the whole city and God saved her so understand all the talk of judgment it's real it's serious and you better be ready But everyone has an opportunity. And my belief is that if anybody makes one slight move even towards the living God, God will rush that person and save that person. God saves people who reach out to him. There's always opportunity. You remember when the angels were going down to uh, destroy the city of the Sodom and Gomorrah? You remember that story? And you remember Abraham starts negotiating. Lord, would you destroy that whole city for the sake of 50? Righteous in the city? And the Lord says, nope. If there's 50, I won't destroy it. 45? Nope, I won't destroy it for 45? What if there's 40? What if there's 30? Lord, would you destroy the city if there were 20? Righteous. And then one final time, Abraham goes, Lord, would you destroy that city if there were 10? 10. And God said, no, I will not destroy that city. As it turns out, In those two cities, there were four. Lot, his wife, and their two daughters. And before the city was destroyed, those four were removed. Okay, so this is all in the mind of God. All of these matters, man, those are the secret things that belong to the Lord. But know this. Know this and trust God with this. He knows those who are seeking him. He knows those who will be saved. And he can discern when a person has said no. No, 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 no. I refuse, I refuse, I refuse. And at that point, that's it. you want to be ready well they took out jericho that city that victory will put everyone else on the land in notice on notice nation of israel will walk in victory they'll conquer in victory and god will give them great great Success. You and I, as Christians, are called to walk in victory too. And I think there are some wonderful lessons from this story. We're Christians, but we still face tough times. We have Jericho's right. There are enemies. There, yeah. We got the sin. We got the flesh. We got the devil. We got the world. There's all kinds of things that come against us. Maybe you're a Christian here this morning and you're facing a particularly tough trial in your life. Whatever it may be, listen. Remember some things from this story. Remember, first of all, that you are already victorious in Jesus Christ. Amen? You are already victorious. You fight from victory, not for victory. Remember also that we are to walk by faith. The book of Hebrews tells us, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down. How did those walls fall down? By faith. God's people believing in God, depending upon him for that strategy, no matter how crazy it might have looked. We are to walk by faith. Clearly, also as Christians, we are to be obedient. The life of victory requires obedience. Obeying the Lord, even in those crazy strategies that don't make sense. Getting those orders daily. Following Him. Walking in victory means obeying the Lord even when it looks really weird from the human perspective. You know, there's a lot that God commands us in the New Testament as Christians that goes straight against what the world believes. The world says the greatest people on the planet are those that have everybody working for them. What does the Bible say? The greatest people on the planet are those who are the servants of all. The world says, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. As individual Christians, what are we supposed to do? Love our enemies. Be kind to our enemies. Pray for them. Philippians chapter 2 says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests but also for the interests of others. That is, that is completely opposite of what this world teaches. The world teaches look out for yourself, look out for number one. A Christian is to look out for others, to be more interested in other people than their own self. It's incredible. like marching around a city. But let's do it. That's the way of victory. Let's close. Let's ask God to help us. Father, I pray that you would help us in our faith. That you would help us in our dependence upon you. Lord, for those here tonight who are facing very, very difficult trials, tough times, I pray, Father, that you'd greatly encourage them tonight. Lord, you are in charge. We can trust you. We need to operate in faith, Lord. And Lord, you can handle situations in very creative ways. we plot and we scheme and we think how we might be able to handle the situation when really, Lord, we need to give the situation over to you. And I pray, Father, that you would just encourage those here tonight facing rough times. I pray for All of us collectively as Christians, that we would walk in victory. That we would not live the defeated life. And then, Lord, I want to pray specifically tonight for anyone here who has never received you. I'll just ask you are you saved? Are you saved? Do you belong to God? Are you in his salvation? God loves you so much. We've all sinned. We're all under the judgment of God. But God sent his son Jesus... To die in our place. He took the judgment. Talk about a God who loves. Look, all that He gave so that we as sinners could be forgiven. He died in your place and He rose again. And if you place your faith in Him, all of your sins are washed away. You are forgiven, you are clean. And you become a child of God, you become saved, a citizen of heaven, no longer under any fear of judgment, accepted, safe in the family of God. But you have to receive him. and don't wait. I invite you right now to pray this prayer with me. If you've never, maybe you've been waiting. Don't wait. Pray this with me right now. Say, Jesus, save me. Save me now. Make me yours right now. I confess I'm a sinner. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins, for paying the price. I receive you right now. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to follow you all the days of life that I have left here. I'll march for you, Lord. jesus name amen let's stand we're going to close with a song and if you prayed to receive christ tonight i want to invite you to come forward and share that with one of us we'd like to pray with you and for you and talk with you more Um, if you need prayer for any other reason again as always we're available let's sing this lesson